Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week we have as our guest a person who's been with us a number of times before, the Attorney General of the state of North Carolina, Josh Stein. And uh, we are delighted to have him back again, talk about the many things that are going on in the Attorney General's office and how it affects the citizens of the state of North Carolina. I guess every time I think about you, uh, Mr. Attorney General, I think about your interest in your devotion to working on the opioid settlement and crisis. Uh, so sort of bring us up to date on where that stands and, and what you're doing about uh, moving forward with your, your work in that area. Thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you. It always is. The, the opioid crisis is absolutely devastating. It's the deadliest drug epidemic in our nation's history. About five or six North Carolinians die of an opioid, opioid overdose every day. Uh, thousands of people since, since the crisis has begun, more people have died of an opioid overdose than have died of COVID-19 here in North Carolina. Um, and what's sad is the crisis has become worse. Uh, it, it's because of COVID. When you think about what COVID has done to us, the, you know, the isolation, anxiety, job loss, uh, depression, all of those are factors that drive drug use and addiction and sadly overdose and death. And so we had actually over years of hard work bent the curve and started to see a decline in the number of people who are dying of opioid overdoses here in North Carolina. Uh, but in 2020, it just blew through the roof. And so it's a very tragic moment we find ourselves in. I have been working hard on this issue since I took office you know, four and a half years ago, focusing on issues like prevention, reducing too many pills being prescribed, doing a lot of consumer education so that people have information that they need to protect themselves, focusing on treatment and recovery services, making sure that they're available to people who need them. And that's why it's so important that the state expand Medicaid, because People who are sick with opioid use disorder need medical care to get better, but to get medical care, you have to pay for medical care, and that's what insurance allows. And on the law enforcement side, we've partnered to give the, the law enforcement more tools to go after drug traffickers and drug dealers who are profiting from this crisis to make money at people's expense, at their health, at their lives. Uh, and so we want to hold those wrongdoers accountable, but we also want to move people who are suffering with addiction out of the criminal justice system and into the healthcare system where they can get the treatment they need to live healthy, happy lives. I would say a fourth thing that I've been working on and probably the most core to my office's function has to do with litigation against the drug companies themselves, the companies that created and fueled this crisis through their greed to sell more pills, because the more pills they sold, the more money they made, but sadly, the more people who became addicted and the more people who have died. So we've had big breakthroughs just in the last few weeks on the litigation. It's been my honor to lead along with the state of Tennessee and Republican Attorney General Herbert Slatery, this national effort of attorneys general. We've got about a 14 state bipartisan uh, executive committee. We've negotiated with the drug distributors, we, with Johnson & Johnson. We've been negotiating with Purdue Pharma and have achieved incredible deals uh, that will produce over $30 billion for this uh, abating this crisis across the country. And North Carolina's share 
is going to be about $850 million. This, Don, is the second biggest state AG settlement in the history of the country, only surpassed by the tobacco cases from 22, 23 years ago. Um, the funds, whether they go to the state or to the local governments, which were also parties, the counties and the cities, they have to go to things like prevention, like treatment, like recovery services, like harm reduction services, where they can actually transform people's lives and, and help people live a life free of addiction. Uh, and it, it, it's good for that person. It's good for their families who suffer along with them. And of course, it's good for the general public too, as there's fewer drug use, fewer loss on our productivity and fewer people in prison. Well, I suspect that uh, the attention we've had on COVID-19 and its, uh, its effect on our health has sort of pushed uh, the, uh, the uh, public's awareness of the, of the opioid uh, problem a little bit to the background. And that's uh, certainly from what you're saying is, is really not the case at all. It's actually worse. And uh, I, I was unaware myself that it had gotten back to the status that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and worse than ever. And I think you're right, Don. I think that the ability of the media and, frankly, the public to be able to process public health crises is limited to one at a time. And look, the pandemic is the worst thing that's happened in 100 years. And so uh, I believe that it is appropriately the source of our attention. And I hope all your listeners out there uh, get vaccinated because we got to crush this thing. And the most effective way to crush it is if people get vaccinated. But we can't forget that there are other public health crises as well, frankly, ones that have been worsened by the pandemic. And that's why I have not taken my foot off the gas in my efforts to combat this opioid crisis here in North Carolina. Now, you've also been involved, and this has been in the news recently, uh, settlements on the e-cigarette situation. Bring us up to date on that. Yeah, e-cigarette, a lot of your listeners may not even really know what they are. They're new technology where it's not a cigarette that you light up with a flame. It's a cigarette that gets heated by a battery and you inhale it and it has nicotine and it has become an incredible source of use by young people, by teenagers. And it's really tragic, Don, because teen smoking since that tobacco settlement I mentioned uh, that happened in 1998. Since that time, teen smoking in this country had gone from about 30% to about 5%. That was a major public health victory. And kids were living better lives without that source of addiction. Since the e-cigarettes, particularly one company called Juul, the gains that we had achieved have evaporated like a puff of smoke. We're back upwards in the 20% now of teenagers who are using these products and they're highly addictive. In fact, more addictive than cigarettes because the kids inhale them more frequently. They have more nicotine concentration. They have all of these flavors that are appealing to them. And so uh, I investigated this because I had high schoolers and I was seeing my children's friends become addicted. And I was hearing from friends of mine about their children and their lives being spiraled out of control. So I, I investigated them. I sued Jewel. We were the first state to sue Jewel. And we won a big win in, in June, $40 million to the state that will be used to prevent kids from becoming addicted to nicotine and helping them quit their addiction, those poor, the tens of thousands who are struggling. 
and they have to fundamentally change their businesses where they aren't going to do new flavors, the way they market. They're not going to have any social media that kids use. They're not going to use any models under the age of 35. They uh, are just going to make sure that they're not appealing to children. And then the way they sell them are going to have very strong age verification systems, whether you buy them online or at point of sale at a retail location, they're going to have, I don't know if you've flown recently, Don, but when you do and you give them the ID to go through TSA, it's a scanner that reads the ID. They don't just look at it anymore. They scan it to see, is it a real ID? Well, they're going to be putting those kinds of machines in retailers all across North Carolina to ensure that kids can't use fake IDs to buy their products. Well, it, it, you know, uh, people who are, are not uh, faced with having an addiction, and we've talked about two of the worst, opioid and uh, e-cigarettes. Of course, uh, regular tobacco smoking is also addictive. Uh, it's, it's really hard for us to understand how people can get in the situation with all the press and all the information that tells you, hey, watch this. This is dangerous. This is something you need to be careful about. But Nonetheless, it does happen, and uh, addictions are just hard to break. Well, and the the majority of people who suffer with addiction started with some form of addiction as a teenager. And you and I know kids just don't always have the best judgment. And what Jewel did is they preyed on kids by making it really cool and really hip and great flavors to make it, it, it became this essentially a wildfire among high schoolers from 2016 to 2019 um, because it was such a hip thing to do. Well, the teenage brain not only has exercises poor judgment, but it has what one neuroscientist said, an exquisite sensitivity to nicotine addiction. The neural pathways are still forming in the, the kid's brain. And if you introduce chemicals like nicotine or opioids to a teenage brain, it'll actually change the way the brain works, making them much more susceptible to other forms of addiction later in life. That's why I'm doing so much work to try to protect kids. I mean, if, a, if an adult wants to use an e-cigarette, that's their choice. But what I will not abide is companies having business practices that have the effect of hooking a generation of teenagers to nicotine. I, I, I will not abide it. How are, uh, are other states uh, now suing Juul? Are other states having any success in that, uh, in that arena? They're definitely following our lead. I think about uh, 11 or 12 have already filed lawsuits, and all of the others are in what's called a multi-state investigation where, where they're partnering together to figure out how they want to proceed. Uh, but this is an area where I'm really proud of North Carolina's leadership. Well, it tells you just how profitable this is because these companies can afford uh, to pay the, the penalties and still stay in business. At, at one point, this company that was created in 2016 was valued at $38 billion. Now, how do authoritative governments like uh, China, how, do, how are they handling this, this kind of situation? They actually have some protections. I mean, there there is a lot of cigarette smoking. And again, if an adult wants to make that kind of choice, uh, I'm not going to tell an adult what they do, right? You know, if, if the adult wants to make that choice, they can. Um, but across the world, there are real concerns about this product because of how effective it is at getting people addicted. 
And in the United States, we have the highest nicotine concentration in our pods. That's what you insert into the device. Ours is at essentially 5.8, 5.9%. In Europe and Israel, they set a maximum of 3%. So it's about half of what it is in the United States, because they know that if it has nicotine concentrations at the US level, people are twice going to get addicted twice as quickly. Uh, and that's a real problem. Why is uh, why has the federal government not gotten involved in this? Well, funny you should say that. Just this week, I organized a letter along with five other attorneys general, three Democratic, three Republican, 31 of our colleagues joined us to send a letter to the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, which has the legal duty to regulate these. And they've been asleep at the switch. And we urged them, don't make us play whack-a-mole against each company one by one by one, like I've had to do with Juul. And I've sued eight, eight other companies. Instead, we're saying set industry standards that serve to protect America's youth. Well, it certainly makes a lot of sense. And it seems like they should have been a little bit proactive, <laughs> certainly proactive in a lot of other areas. And why not this one? Agreed. Our guest is Attorney Agreed. General Josh Sign, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers after we take time out for these messages. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Josh Stein, who is serving as the 50th Attorney General in the state of North Carolina. He's been a frequent guest on our program before. We talk about all sorts of things. In the first segment, we were talking about e-cigarettes and opioid. Now I want to turn to COVID-19. And it seems like every time we have a crisis, whether it's a weather-related crisis or some other kind of uh, disaster or opportunity, we always have scams, and I'm sure there have been a lot of scams connected with COVID-19 because people are always looking for a quick fix. Uh, have you had uh, evidence of many scams? And if, you, if so, how about telling us about how some of them are working? <laughs> More scams than you can conceivably imagine, Don, because what the scammers do is they take some event that's in the news where there's a lot of public interest a lot of public uncertainty and fear. 
And that's when they strike. And, the, and at every stage of this COVID-19 pandemic, there have been scams and they sort of change depending on what is the news of the day or where are we in the crisis? So at the very beginning, we saw a lot of price gouging over masks and, and um, cleaning supplies. Then we saw miracle cures being touted that you can't get it if you take this cure. That, this was before there was a vaccine. And then when the economic impact payments were issued that summer to help people who uh, were struggling financially, there were all these scams saying, I'm from the IRS, give me your bank account number and I'll make sure I deposit you the, the cash. Then there were, when there was contact tracing going on, they were pretending they were from the county health department and engaged in contact tracing and trying to put malware on your phone. Uh, and, and Basically, at every stage of the process, there, there were when vaccines first came out and there were great demand, there were people saying that they could sell them a, a place in line at the head of the line to, to jump their priority in order to get the vaccine. Um, and now for the people who refuse to get vaccinated, we're seeing fake vaccine cards for sale, which is absolutely yeah. mind boggling, Don. You, you would actually pay money and engage in a federal crime to buy this ID when you can literally get it for free and in the process get a vaccine that serves to dramatically increase the likelihood of your staying alive and importantly, everyone you know and love staying alive. And so basically at every step of this process, we've seen some scam or, or another. Well, it's sad to watch uh... Uh, the television interviews of those who have not been vaccinated and now they're in the hospitals uh, and uh, on the way, maybe even to death. And they're pleading with people who have not taken the vaccine to take it. But it doesn't seem to be having a huge influence on a lot of people. What what do we need to do to get this uh, 25 to 30 percent of folks who just seemingly are just digging in and not going to take the vaccine? There are no simple answers, obviously, because we would have executed on them. I mean, we, we tried the lottery, you know, we tried persuasion. This whole problem of the uh, Delta variant that is so much more transmissible, it didn't have to be. If folks had gotten their vaccines in May and June and we'd reached the critical mass of people vaccinated, there wouldn't have been a population for it to take root in and it wouldn't have spread. What I really fear is that if people continue not to get vaccinated, it's not going to be the Delta variant. It's going to be some new variant that we don't even know that actually vaccines don't even work against. And then they will not only be taking their lives into their own hands, they're going to be taking everybody else's life into their own hands. Uh, I, I, you know, my daughter's getting ready to start public school here in Wake County, and she has to go back to school with a mask on. And I do not begrudge the school board for making that decision because a lot of kids can't get vaccinated and we want, we have to do everything we can to protect school children. But I'm so upset that she's in that position where she has to wear the mask because people refuse to get vaccinated. If everyone simply got vaccinated, then people wouldn't have to wear masks anymore. Vaccines are more effective than masks and it's so self-defeating. Um, you know, 
if I, you know, if I ran an airline, I would make sure everybody who flew on my plane was vaccinated. If I had a restaurant, I'd make sure everybody who came in was vaccinated. I don't want people who work for me and who are my fellow patrons to get sick. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's what it's going to take. Why, why can't we not just require that uh, you have to take it? Uh, I mean, we certainly do that with some of the childhood disease vaccinations before they go to school. They have to have a number of uh, vaccinations, and that's been law for some time. So why, why can't – now, I, I'm, I'm saying this at the risk of knowing that I'm going to get about 25 emails from yeah. people who tell me this is none of my business. That happens every week now. Yeah, we, we are in really – divided partisan times. And, and you're right, you know, all of our children who go to public school have to be vaccinated. Um, th th there is Supreme Court law that says you can mandate vaccines. And I, you know, it may end up getting to the point where that ends up happening. None of us want to force anybody to do anything. But at a certain point, people have to take responsibility, not only for themselves, but for people around them and, and their neighbors and their family members and their colleagues and everybody else. And I'm as uh, kind of perplexed and frustrated as you are. Well, one of the things that I always point out to people when they uh, don't like something that's going on, I always say, your freedom ends where my nose begins. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, we do have a certain responsibility to other people. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, for example, seatbelts not only protect you from an accident, but they also make you a little safer driver because uh, you're not going to be, you'll be in control of the car longer in the case of a wreck. So you are all doing two things at the same time. Well, and, and uh, we, we require motorcycle helmets because one, we do want people to be healthy and alive, but those who are indifferent to their own health and want to ride a motorcycle without a, license, a helmet, when they have brain damage, they go into the emergency room and guess who pays for all of those medical bills? You and I do. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing with COVID. You think all this treatment that's going on for all these people in ICUs is free? No, everybody is paying for this medical care. And it is so much more expensive to treat somebody with COVID than it is to prevent that person from ever getting COVID. Well, we started this segment out talking about the vaccine, uh, vaccine scams. Uh, if, if you uh, are called or are exposed to something that you think might be a scam, what should uh, a person do? We absolutely want them to call my office. And we have a toll-free number. It's 877-5-NO-SCAM. That's 877-5-NO-SCAM. What we really want people to do when something happens that doesn't feel quite right, and that it could be somebody from the IRS talking about an economic impact payment, or it could be somebody from the county clerk's office threatening you to go to jail for not showing up for jury duty. Like if something comes across your uh, phone or your email or a social media post that you don't know, it doesn't sound right or you're scared, call us. Because if we can explain what's going on to you and keep you from losing the money, that is so much better than trying to get the money back, which is sadly almost impossible. A lot of these criminals that number, are, are, are off. That number again is 877-5-NO-SCAM. That's right. 877-5-NO-SCAM. Easy to remember, and we'll repeat that number a couple more times during the course of the program. 
Uh, any other uh, particular scams that you'd like to point out that have to do with COVID-19 that are, are prevalent or more uh, seemingly more widespread? I, I think that we covered the, the waterfront on that. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's always amazing to me how smart some of these people are. And I've often wondered the, the uh, people who uh, conduct these scams, they're so smart. Why don't they... <laughs> Why don't they put their talents to use in regular business and stay keep themselves out of jail? Because they're clearly smart. I mean, some of these things are really ingenious the way they go about them. A very creative, and it's you know we have to try to redouble our efforts. You know, robocalls are a perfect example. They we all were inundated with these telemarketing calls 20, 25 years ago, and they were driving us crazy. And you remember, Don, we created the do not call list. And that thing yeah. actually worked for a long time because they were legitimate telemarketers and they had to comply with the law because if they didn't, we would go after them. And I, you know, I used to work in the AG's office in consumer protection and we would sue them. But then what happened was the Internet and the criminals started using the Internet, this technology called voice over Internet protocol to make billions of phone calls. And it's really much easier to mask where they're coming from and spoof the number so that it, it looks like it's from your family member when it's they're calling you from India or Nigeria or somewhere. And what I've been doing on that issue is working with the phone companies to improve their technology to screen out a lot more of those calls. So I, it's a lot more common now. You'll get a notice on your phone that says spam alert or robocall alert. And that was something I actually negotiated with the phone companies that they affirmatively put this technology on the phone so that you and I don't have to get distracted to the same degree. Now they still get through and they still drive me crazy. And that's why one of the um, agreements I reached with the phone companies was that they would cooperate with my office and other AG offices around the country to go after the original telemarketer. It, it's called traceback investigation, where you go, this call went from here to here to here to here, back to the point of origin. And then we can hold the wrongdoers accountable. And I've got a couple of court cases going on right now, one in Texas against a guy who made some 75 million calls in North Carolina about auto warranties. I mean, everybody gets these auto warranty calls. And I want these guys to stop. And the best way I can do it is to shine a light through these investigations and then go after the wrongdoers. And we're trying to do that. 75 million calls. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. That's Another crazy. target that we're going after are these very small telephone service providers, not the ones that you and I have our cell phone contracts with, but these are small companies you never heard of that the traffic originates on their networks and they turn a blind eye to these calls that they suspect are illegal. But if they do turn a blind eye, they get fractions of a penny of each call that goes through their network. And so they're making money off of these illegal calls. And I know they know it. And so that's the next line of attack that we're going to take in our fight against robocalls. But essentially, there's already legislation that backs you in these efforts. It's just the implementation of it. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the law is clear that they're violating it. They're just, they are flouting the law. They're engaged in criminal behavior, and they think they can get away with it because of they can hide behind technology. And so we're trying to use the technology to shine a light on them 
so we can put them out of business. Look, I, I'm not going to make any promises that we're going to end robocalls, but I'm going to do everything in my power to dial them back uh, as, as low as possible. Obviously, if we can get to zero, that's where I want to end up. Um, but I, it, these calls are annoying, right? You and I, they drive us crazy. But the reason they exist isn't to drive us crazy. The reason they exist is to steal from vulnerable people. And I actually, we had a, a North Carolinian, a woman who lost over $1 million, her entire life's savings to these robocall criminals. And it it's heartbreaking because we can't get the money back. And so that's why I want to do everything we can to protect people, people like her across North Carolina. Well, it's a shame because, uh, as you said, the, 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 some folks are losing uh, their entire life savings, and that's just uh, that's just tragic. Our okay. guest is uh, Attorney General John Stein, and we will be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. We're going to take a break for these messages, and then we'll be back, and we're going to turn our attention to some other scams and some other projects that the Attorney General's staff is currently working on. And we'll do that right after these messages. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. And we're back on Carolina Newsmakers with Josh Stein, the North Carolina Attorney General, now in his second uh, term of holding down that position for the state of North Carolina. Uh, uh, Mr. Attorney General, probably one of the things that we didn't talk about too much are some of the other duties and responsibilities of the Attorney General's office. We know about... Uh, uh, the settlements that you're working on with opioid and the e-cigarettes and, of course, the various scams and so forth. But just to have a sort of an overview of your main responsibilities and, and what you're charged with uh, at the Attorney General's office uh, as your duties for the state of North Carolina. Happy to, Don. The, the office has a, a broad array of responsibilities, but it's all uh, around the theme of protecting people. And we do it in a lot of different ways. Uh, probably the most commonly understood way is our, the role we play in the criminal justice system. We protect families from crime by prosecuting certain crimes. When local district attorneys refer cases to us, we handle every criminal appeal in, in the state. 
operate the North Carolina Justice Academy, which is where law enforcement's trained. We have the state crime lab, which analyzes crime scene evidence, uses, it could be DNA, it could be drug chemistry analysis, it could be bullets, you know, whatever the case may be. And we participate in important criminal justice debate issues, such as the opioid crisis, figuring out ways to tackle this because it's filling up our jails with people uh, with addiction. And we've talked a lot about that already. Uh, but also things like criminal justice reform. Uh, the governor asked me to co-chair the task force for racial equity and criminal justice. And uh, I've been doing that with Justice Anita Earls and 23 other people. And we've been working to come up with ideas. There's some 125 separate recommendations we've made to make our criminal justice system better and fairer. And, and we're working now to implement those ideas. Things like sexual assault kits, which we can talk about shortly. So that's a lot of criminal justice stuff. Then we do consumer protection. And we've talked about the scam fighting that we do and consumer education, going after companies that are bad actors and try to take advantage of people, deceive people, trick them, treat them unfairly. We'll hold them accountable and make them pay reimbursements to, you know, to the people they've wronged. We protect natural resources, the air we breathe and water we drink. I've got a, a big case that's underway right now against DuPont and Camours, the, the chemical companies. They have a factory outside of Fayetteville called the Fayetteville Works that produces a chemical called Gen X, a, a forever chemical that they've been putting in the Cape Fear River and into people's neighboring people's groundwater. And I, I'm holding, I take them, took them to court to hold them accountable. I, I firmly believe that when polluters pollute, they should be the ones to pay to clean up the pollution, not you and me. So making sure our air and our water are clean is an important part of what we do. And we also protect people's fundamental rights, making sure that they have the right to vote here in our democracy. So you can see that the range of activities are very broad, but it really is about serving and protecting the people of our state. One of the cases you're involved here right now involves uh, Google and an antitrust matter. Tell us a little bit about that. So that's that's an example that falls under our, our consumer protection and antitrust work. What our antitrust laws do is protect you and me as consumers, uh, because if a company is a monopoly, meaning that they're the dominant player in some industry, then there's no one competing against them to keep prices down. And there's no one competing against them to make sure that the services serve our interest and are, are what we want them to be. That's why for something like Duke Energy, which is a monopoly when it comes to providing our electricity, it's regulated by the government to make sure that its rates aren't too high and don't take advantage of us. Well, Google has achieved a monopoly in a couple of different ways. They're the, the dominant search engine and on their uh, on the um, Android phones, the Google operating system is the only one that operates. And they've got this in-app payment store, uh, in-app store where you download all the apps and they force you, if you use that in-app store, to use their Google payment processor, which charges 30% to process a, a payment of any in-app purchase, meaning any payment you make for the uh, app or within that app, using the app, any future payments you make. And that just means we're paying a lot more than we should. A basic payment processor, like a credit card, usually charges 2 or 3%. They're charging 30%. And as a result, that's money out of our pockets that we shouldn't have to pay. And it's really hurting the app developers 
because they are losing out on some revenue that should be theirs, not Google's. And there's less innovation. And when there's less innovation, less innovators, that means that you and I as customers are, are missing out on that as well. So that's why I brought this case against Google. Are other uh, states joining with you oh, on this? Definitely. In, in th that case, there's some 37 states. Uh, and again, this is all bipartisan stuff. You know, we live in very par partisan times where Democrats and Republicans seemingly have a tough time agreeing on anything. But attorneys general are actually of elected officials among the best at, at working together, collaborating, because if there's a problem in my state against Purdue Pharma, the opioid manufacturer, or against Google, um, it's also going to hurt a person in Tennessee, and it's going to hurt a person in Nebraska, and it's going to hurt a person in California. And so whether the AG is a Democrat or Republican in these states, we end up working together a lot on these big cases. Well, you know, state lines are sort of interesting things because uh, uh, weather emergencies don't stop at uh, state lines and neither do scammers. I mean, and uh, I suspect very often you have to work with uh, an attorney general in another state when someone in Texas is running a scam that is uh, affecting people in North Carolina. No, no question at all. And we do, we also partner with our, our federal um, uh, partners as well. So for instance, that I told you about that robocall case I've got, it's actually in Texas, like you said, and there are a few states that are in it with me, but so is the Federal Trade Commission. And they are working with us on that same case. And in the case, one of my two cases against Google, the U.S. Department of Justice has filed a very similar case, and we are partnering with them on that as well. So it, people don't always know that government can actually function and, and work together, but we can work together both across party lines among states, but also between states and the federal government, too. I have a good friend who's an attorney, and he has a statement that says a case never tried is a case never lost. So I suspect that... Uh, one of the problems that you have in these antitrust cases is the uh, the uh, defense actually just likes to delay and put off because if it's not tried, they can't lose. And, and these cases are, are tough. I mean, I don't want to pretend they're not because when you look at the antitrust law, it was created over 100 years ago and it was to deal with all the, the trusts and monopolies we had and, and oil and gas and then railroads. Well, Big tech is just a, it's a different beast. And the laws don't always, even though they apply, they don't always apply really neatly because the case law has been developed over years, really contemplating things that you can touch and feel. And uh, it makes it challenging. You know, we brought a case against Facebook and the court uh, said they dismissed it. And so now we're re- uh, visiting, we're going to appeal that, and if necessary, we'll, we will refile it. But it just goes to show what you said that you don't always win the the case that you bring, but you're never going to win a case if you don't bring it. And when I see people being hurt, uh, I'm going to step up, e even if it risks uh, a loss. I suspect that uh, uh, when before, and of course, you have some history with the Attorney General's office before you became Attorney General. But back when you were in college, I, I doubt very seriously that you had the the uh, the 
they understand the depth and breadth of the problems that you're facing now. So how did you get interested in this kind of work? I was, I was born to my parents. It's pretty simple. I grew up here in North Carolina. My family moved to Charlotte right after I was born, where we lived for five years. And my dad formed, along with Julius Chambers and James Ferguson, North Carolina's first integrated law firm. And they, this is in the mid 60s, they did all these big cases on school desegregation, employment non discrimination, uh, voting rights, public access to uh, facilities. And it was not, it, it was not always easy. They certainly were not always popular. Uh, you know, their offices were firebombed, and um, we used to get, my mom would get threatening calls at night. And um, so I was just raised that what you do is whatever your interests and talents are, you find out what that is, and then you apply them in a way to try to make things better for more people, get help, try to help people have more opportunity to achieve whatever it is that they want for their own in their own lives. And that's what's driven me. And that that's why, how I ended up here as attorney general. If you had uh, the ability to write laws that have not been introduced yet, have not been uh, uh, considered yet, what, what kind of changes would you make to the way that our governments operate and uh, what kind of additional assistance do you need from the law to, to bring about the kind of changes that you're talking about? Well, I mean, there, there are a lot. There, there are big changes and there are little changes uh, on health care. One of the biggest drivers of health care inflation and costs have to do with um, health system hospitals merging and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because the bigger hospital systems get on average, the more expensive the services are and the lower quality they are. It's actually counter to our interests. Well, I think the laws could be stronger in giving me better authority to review those transactions, to make sure that instead of um, to, to make sure that when these transactions happen, it's actually in the consumer's interest and not in the health system's interest. So that's one example. I think there could be better and stronger laws to protect our privacy. You know, so much of our lives are online now. And I think that all that information about you and me should belong to you and me. It shouldn't belong to the big tech companies which can then exploit it to their advantage. And they may not have the same interests about preserving our privacy as you and I do. And so I think those laws can be improved. Um, there's a lot of things we can do to make, uh, make our state operate in a, a um, or just to have more opportunity for people to really thrive and succeed. Well, you know, that's, uh... Uh, I've often said, you know, the very best form of government would be a, a benevolent dictatorship. But unfortunately, those don't work out very well for very long because uh, they, they uh, may be benevolent for a little bit, but not very long. No, uh, there have been a couple of times where it looked like it might uh, work out, but it usually power corrupts. And, and that's uh, something we've dealt with for years. I'm often uh, reminded of Winston Churchill's statement about Americans. He said, you know, Americans usually get it right, but it's usually after they've tried all the wrong uh, methods first. <laughs> they, they try all the wrong decisions before they get to the right ones. But uh, I guess that's just the way our government is, is functioning. Uh, well, uh, 
So uh, basically, the antitrust actions uh, will, how long will that uh, Google uh, action take before it does reach some sort of a uh, court case? Yeah, I mean, we're, we filed it. Um, they responded doing a motion to dismiss. These cases can take a long time to resolve. The last massive state antitrust action was against Microsoft in the late 90s. And, and you know, it took years. The, the, the companies are monopolies, meaning they are huge and they have vast amounts of resources. But when the states partner together and uh, partner with the federal government, we, we can uh, fight back. And that's what we're going to do. And I hope it doesn't take forever, but if uh, I'll fight it as long as it, as it takes. Our guest is uh, Attorney General Josh Stein, and we'll be back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers after we take time out for this break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about legislation that uh, is either being considered by the Congress or by the General Assembly and what that might uh, do to us here as citizens of the state of North Carolina. And we'll do that right after these messages. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with... uh Attorney General Josh Stein, we talked about all sorts of things. In the first segment, we talked about the opioid settlement and the e-cigarette situation. Uh, we talked about the uh, various COVID-19 vaccine scams that are going around. And we've talked about some antitrust actions that the, gov- that the Attorney General's office are working with. We didn't touch on the flooding in Western North Carolina because every time we have any kind of a weather emergency, there always seems like this some scamming going on and some situations that involve your office. I hope there are not many this time. We haven't heard of any yet, but the uh, anti-price gouging law of North Carolina is now in effect. It's triggered whenever a state of emergency is declared by the governor. And of course, those folks out there are really, really struggling. I I was uh, texting with a friend of mine in Waynesville today and his daughter's house got totally flooded and nobody was injured. Thank Thank goodness. But there's a lot of people struggling. And what we were saying earlier, sadly, there are people who prey on people's desperation. And we want folks to know that if they see any price gouging to immediately let our office know 
so we can bring an action. We did, we just brought an action. If, if you remember when we had that little gas crisis because the pipeline got shut down, there was a gas station in Durham that almost doubled their prices, I think 60% or something like that price increase when their costs had not gone up at all. And they still had the gas in the tank and in the big tank underneath uh, the pumps. And so we just took them to court last week for violating our price gouging law that wasn't effect then. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. We've got the Congress, of course, is in, in session, and so is the North Carolina General Assembly. Any particular bits of legislation at uh, on either the federal level or the state level that uh, uh, you're watching and uh, that will concern what you do as Attorney General? Yeah, there, there are. there's a lot going on both in Congress and at the General Assembly. I'll, I'll start here in North Carolina first. That, something that's really positive. It's a, a bill that's been pushed by Senator Danny Britt, um, and it's it's called SB 300. It's a criminal justice reform bill, and it's about having better training for officers and more accountability when the officer does things it shouldn't. It uses excessive force. Um, there's a duty when one officer sees another officer engaged in excessive use of force to, re to report that to a supervisor. We want to have a, a database of officers that have um, suspensions and decertifications so that they can't go from one agency to the next. That's called the wandering officer problem, where they just take their problems with them. And there are a number of other provisions. And that bill um, just passed the House, 100 to 2. So this is another good example of bipartisanship. And it's already passed the Senate, so I'm very confident that will become law. The governor is fully on board with it. Uh, another bill that I'm really happy about, and it's kind of shocking that it was even necessary, but we, we were one of two states in the entire country that permitted 14-year-olds to get married, which is, is just awful. And we became a destination for sex trafficking where people would come with a 14-year-old and they were an adult, and then they would essentially get married to legalize what is an illegal relationship. And the state is finally revisiting that. And uh, I'm really grateful for the legislature moving that forward. Um, there are a couple other bills there that uh, I'm watching with interest and slightly some slight concern. Uh, one is an, an energy bill that would take away from the Public Utility Commission existing authority it has in order to make determinations about what is the best and lowest cost source of energy. Uh, and it would strip them of that authority and give it essentially to Duke Energy. And I just think it's a, it's a bad move and it doesn't have enough uh, renewables component to the bill either. And we have got to start the important work of transitioning towards renewable energy and increasing the amount of power we get from solar and from wind, um, because we are seeing the effects of the climate crisis in real time. I mean, these forest fires that are raging, the, the storms, um, the extreme heat, uh, this is the climate crisis happening today. This isn't some future problem, it's a current problem. Um, there's another bill that the legislature is moving that would strip from sheriffs their ability to do background checks for pistol permits. And where what I think is adults should be able to go buy a gun, 
But we don't want dangerous people buying guns. We don't want felons. We don't want domestic abusers and other dangerous people getting guns. And there are loopholes in the background checks where if you get it from a private purchaser at a gun show, the federal system doesn't apply. And the sheriff's doing the background check on on these pistols has been a good source of protection to reduce crime. And Missouri actually passed a law very similar to what is being considered at the General Assembly. And murders and suicides by gun went up measurably afterwards. And there's too much violent crime. We need to keep people safe, keep people, keep the community safe. Um, So these are a number of the bills that are happening in the legislature. The biggest bill, of course, is the budget. And there's a lot of money at stake, but there are also a lot of policy positions in it. Um, One thing that's positive that's in the budget, and it's in the governor's version, it's in the House version and the Senate version. So this is good because it means it's exceptionally likely it'll be in the final version is another nine million dollars to help us eliminate the backlog of untested sexual assault kits. When we started looking at this in 2017, we came to the sad realization North Carolina had more of these untested kits than any state in the entire United States, which is inexcusable because we owe it to victims. Particularly, these are victims who, after the attack, underwent an invasive medical examination to deliver evidence to the criminal justice system, and the criminal justice system failed them because they took the evidence, put it in a box, and it sat on a shelf in the in local law enforcement offices all across North Carolina, some 16,000. Well, we have been at this work for the last two or three years and making progress. Of these 16,000 kits, more than half have either been tested or are in the process of being tested. And of those tested, about 1,250 of them have a sample that you can upload into this CODIS database where you can say, okay, here's the the DNA. Let's see if it matches to a person. Well, 45% of those 1,250 have matched to a person, which now means that some old cold case has an incredibly hot lead. And we notify local law enforcement. And since we've been doing this, there's been 41 arrests related to at least 59 sexual assaults that have already been made. And these are dangerous people who make our communities less safe and taking them off the streets will help the public. And importantly, it brings justice to victims who suffered uh, a terrible trauma years and years ago. There's something that's in the budget that's really important for our work on sexual assault. The number of kits that are being submitted, what I was just talking about are the old kits, the ones that are in the backlog, they're, you know, some of them are 30 years old. Well, of the current kits, those that happen kind of in real time, there are more and more of those kits being submitted to the crime lab for analysis, and we need more scientists so that another backlog doesn't develop. The House had five scientists. We need 12 scientists. The Senate had no scientists. So it is our sincere hope that for the safety of the public, that they give us the number of scientists we need so we can do the important work of the criminal justice system. What about on the federal level? There's actually, we were talking about antitrust and how our antitrust laws are really old and don't apply well to the new industries of big technology. And there are four or five bills that are moving in the House to address that issue. And it's my genuine hope that those bills pass out of the House 
and can attract the necessary number of votes in the Senate and become law. This infrastructure bill is really important. I was very pleased to see that the bipartisan uh, group of senators negotiated it, and a large number of um, Democrats and Republicans voted for it in the Senate. They've kicked it over to the House. Uh, I'm optimistic about its ultimate passage. (laughs) There's all kinds of crazy games being played between the House and the Senate about which bill to take up when. uh, And I hope they don't screw it up. I don't think they will. Uh, I think they all realize this one's too important for the economic future of this country to have a a strong infrastructure because uh, we need to have roads. We need to have railroad. We need to have uh, a modernized electric grid. We need to have broadband. These are all the things without which uh, we're going to fall behind our competitors and we can't have that happen. I noticed on my list of things that Jason, our producer, has given me is something that says Safe Child Act. Uh, I haven't heard that. Uh, what uh, What's that about? This is a law that my office drafted a couple of years ago that the legislature passed. Again, this was an, a, a unanimous issue. On, on a lot of these criminal justice issues, uh, Don, I want to underscore, it's not Republican versus Democrat. It's public officials protecting the public. And the philosophy of this Safe Child Act is to ensure that children are protected from child sex abusers. And we want to protect them wherever they are, whether they're at summer camp, after school, uh, Boy Scouts, I don't care where they are, or if they're at church or temple or, or mosque, and when they're online, which is where kids spend an increasingly an increasing amount of time. So the law had a number of ways to protect kids. Um, one thing it did was allow people who ha- it, it increased the statute of limitations. This is a technical legal idea. But if in a typical case, if you in, uh, are harmed by somebody, you have to bring a case within a few years. And if you don't bring it within a few years, you can't bring it. You're, you've, you've lost out your opportunity. Well, with teenagers who were abused sexually, it can take them years, even decades, until they have processed emotionally what they need in order to hold their wrongdoer accountable in court. So we increased the statute of limitations by seven years. And for anybody who was sexually abused as a child before, it gave them two years to bring an action, no matter how old they are. So it, it was like an opportunity for a 50-year-old who was abused before to to sue their abuser for the the harm that they suffered at their hands. And there is a case that's currently being argued where uh, the defendant saying you that that's unconstitutional. So I filed a brief arguing no, yes, in fact, you can bring a case late uh, uh, because of this law that the legislature passed. Uh, very quickly, I see uh, veterans' access to benefits is on the list, and you've got about 20 seconds to tell me about it. Well, the veterans have certain rights to certain benefits based on their status as a veteran, and that applies to their families. Scammers try to steal their money. We're out there trying to educate them about what their rights are and what they need to know to protect themselves. That was almost exactly 20 seconds. You did good work. You 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 might be a, a prospect for the midnight to six shift on our country yeah. and western station. Who knows? Sign me up. Uh, our guest has been Josh Stein, the North Carolina Attorney General. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, 
you can go to carolinaneesmakers.com. Program has been produced by Jason Cog, and he'll have another guest for us next week on the same group of stations. So the next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.